Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. But before we get into the podcast, a word from the sponsors of this episode, Chargebee. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS and subscription startups, such as Hopin, Spendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is particularly powerful for European startups to navigate complex issues such as tax compliances, invoicing, and billing regulations. The product also enables you to experiment with different pricing models and also to localize the pricing and checkout experiences. So check them out at chargebee.com. And now let's get into today's episode. According to a recent HBR article, a third of all professionally managed assets globally which is roughly around $30 trillion, are now subject to what's called Environment, Sustainability, and Governance, or ESG criteria. That's really not an insignificant figure. It, in fact, represents an increase of more than 30% since 2016. Sustainability is now the new goal for companies, and the key to achieving it is ensuring that we can actually measure ESG activities and, more importantly, its impact. My guest today is Samantha Duncan, CEO and co-founder of London-based Net Purpose, who's going to help us understand the world of ESG, what is working, what is not, and how she came to find product market fit in this world. I'll get into this a lot more in the podcast, but a little bit about Net Purpose and Samantha. Net Purpose mission is to simplify and bring reliable data and analytics to the ESG industry. Prior to starting Net Purpose, Samantha was at Goldman Sachs, and then more recently, she was head of impact at LeapFrog Investments. Welcome, Sam. Thank you, Anita. So happy and thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Sam, I wanted to start off by asking, what does ESG really mean beyond the acronyms of environment, sustainability, and governance? Could you give us a quick history of ESG and where we are today? Love the statistic that you started with around one third of all the assets under management being committed to investing with ESG principles. And that is a monumental shift that's happened really in the last 10 to 20, even 30 years. And in a nutshell, what it represents is this growing movement of investors that are convinced that environmental, social and governance factors are key to influencing financial returns but also there's an opportunity to embed those factors in investment decision-making such that investments can optimize for profit, but also what we call purpose, i.e. social and environmental outcomes. So this trend has been building for a number of years. It really started late 80s, kind of early 90s, where the global development banks like the IFC established what was called the equator principles for project finance where massive infrastructure projects were being deployed across the world. And they said, we should be considering the environment and the communities around those projects whenever we're doing anything here. And those principles of considering those factors started to be embedded in project finance all those years ago, and then really mainstreamed through alternative assets, equities, fixed income, like bonds, et cetera and is now mainstream across all asset classes. The industry did start by thinking about those risks, as in there are risks to the environment and communities by conducting these activities. But I think the big shift that's happened in the last couple of years 
is that it's really now focused on returns such that investors can actually help achieve global goals like averting climate change and solving inequality through their investments as well as achieving financial return. So ESG has kind of shifted to not just risk, but also how do we invest to achieve both financial returns as well as environmental and social outcomes. When you say ESG then, is this ESG for the sake of investors or for the sake of society? Are companies looking at ESG primarily when they're looking for investment or is this something that is actually there to somehow better society? I think the fundamental pull is coming from the fact that we have a lot of social and environmental problems to solve (laughs) and that pervades everyone. So it's not just investors. Yes, it's consumers that are purchasing from companies that companies are serving And it's the asset owners and the holders of money that are invested in those companies that are thinking, gosh, I've got to invest my money differently, which is driving the investment industry to think through these factors. I think it's pervasive. I think it's driven by these social and environmental goals and problems that we need to solve and a recognition among consumers that are buying from companies as well as investors that we need to do something about this. When you go deeper into environmental sustainability and governance, Talk to me about how does this really work in real life? Because I would imagine that every company and every industry has different factors when it comes to environment, sustainability and governance that actually impact it. Like an airline Mm -hmm. is more about fuel and pollution versus an online retailer, maybe about labor practices. They're so different. So talk to me about how does this really work in real life? I think that's part of what we exist to help solve is to simplify this very complex world. And maybe just to level set, the United Nations has defined 17 sustainable development goals, which reflect 17 big agenda items around climate and carbon emissions, clean energy generation, access to financial services and healthcare. The second thing to say is there's a lot of standards that have tried to evolve to help companies and investors do this today. A couple of the key ones include those UN Sustainable Development Goals, but also EU regulations coming into play, GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative, and SASB, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. They actually have done industry-specific assessments of what is important for airlines, for example, versus Coca-Cola or versus Facebook and Microsoft, et cetera. And that's where companies and people can go to get that reference point. There's really five things I think that we're all talking about. And one is carbon emissions impact and your impact on the environment, basically, and the emissions that you generate is very sector specific. So you're right. Airlines will have a huge impact. Transportation in general has a huge impact on the emissions, the vehicles on the road as well as airlines, whereas a bank in a building might not have as big of an environmental impact. But that kind of category of environmental impact is one. Water usage is the other. Waste generation. And then on the social side, really think about employment, like who you're employing and the diversity of those employees and your customers. Like who are you providing And with what service, access to essential services like healthcare, affordable housing, or other services like sugary drinks and soft drinks, et cetera. So those five categories simplify the lexicon, but it will be different for every company 
if you look at all the companies in all the different industries, how important is ESG? Where are companies with ESG today? Like, are they all working towards making visible their performance against the ESG for their industry? Is this just something established companies like Coca-Cola are doing, but not startups? Where are we in terms of the prominence and usage and Mm -hmm. adherence to ESG? We're on a journey, but we're on a really accelerated journey. And I think the context for this is really that we're seeing an evolution here in how we measure the performance of companies. And traditionally, we've seen company performance quantified in financial terms, like revenue and EBITDA and profit, et cetera, which is well known today, but actually wasn't standardized until the early 2000s when Enron and WorldCom collapsed. And until then, you had different accounting standards of financial performance in every single country. And that was locked down in the early 2000s with the international financial reporting standards. Now, what we're saying is, hold on, it's not just financial performance that matters. For example, these five indicators or more that matter and companies need to start measuring those. And that recognition really started 90s, but we are quite far along this experimentation now such that 90% of the world's largest companies in the S&P 500, et cetera, report according to one standard and they all report on their environmental and social indicators Now, those are the world's largest companies. They have big reporting teams and a big budget to actually implement that. But I think you're seeing that now flow through to startups and flow through to venture capital that are their LPs, like their investors are asking them to implement ESG. So their startups are going to have to figure out a little bit how they align. I think we're at a pretty cool spot where we've got standardization among really large companies or increasing standardization. And now it's an opportunity for smaller companies to leverage the work of those consolidated standards and simplify their contributions on those indicators. Well, that's really good news for startups, a lot of whom are the audience for this show. So if they were looking at this, could this be actually a competitive advantage in any way for them, startups that are in different stages of their company? And if they are looking into it, where do they go? What do they do if they had to start looking at actually adhering to ESG? I think it's a huge opportunity for startups. And startups are super interesting because they're quite simple, right? Like starting with one idea, hopefully one product they're trying to achieve product market fit on or a few ideas, but they're very different from a huge conglomerate that actually has a lot of work to do to clean up what they've already done to make that better. So I'd say for startups... A, you can come to net purpose. We've got resources to help you figure out what to measure. But B, your opportunity is in really identifying your product and figuring out what problem that is solving. And I do think if you're solving an environmental or social problem today, there are going to be a lot of interested investors in that because the people you're pitching to, VCs and others, are taking money and investing money from a whole host of investors that really care about ESG. And then I think the way you conduct your business is really what traditional ESG thinks about. Like, what's your electricity bill? If you're using dirty energy or clean energy on the grid, you'll be able to quantify your carbon emissions. How many people do you employ? What's the gender diversity and the racial diversity, et cetera, and backgrounds of those people? Your waste and your water usage. Now, for some tech startups, those will actually be quite small. 
So minimum footprint, except your electricity, how much data you're processing. For others, distribution-wise, like the fleet of people that you're using to get your products to market, et cetera, will have an impact on your kind of carbon footprint per se. There's your product and then how you conduct your business. You're probably in a spot where you don't have a huge footprint if you're a startup, but having those things in mind, I think, is more important such that when you get to a point, you can start to quantify them and make decisions that help improve your sustainability from the outset. I have seen a few companies that have been guests on my show who have the B Corp certification, which also is kind of giving the same signal about sustainability. But I think those are companies where their whole mission was impacting some environmental or sustainability goal directly. Exactly. Yeah. And I love B-Lab, by the way. I actually sat on their standards committee and helped develop the assessment that is used to certify companies. Oh, lovely. I could talk forever asking you questions about ESG. I do want to take a minute to talk a little bit about net purpose. I'm curious to understand what triggered you to start net purpose and what is the problem that you are trying to solve in this ESG world that you've described to us? What prompted us to start net purpose is that we are slash were investors and we were investing for impact, really, trying to identify companies that could meaningfully help solve some of the world's most pressing social and environmental challenges and then trying to report on that impact to our investors who had backed us to find companies that could help us achieve that as well as generate financial returns. So personally, I was in the middle of this needing to measure the impact of our portfolio and in a cohort of people that were trying to do similar things at the investors that had invested with us, but also peers in the industry who were really serious about implementing ESG and found it really hard. So we kind of had this cohort of people that felt like we had the coolest jobs in the world because we're responsible and, and have an opportunity to make a difference here. But this is so hard. And it was so uneffortless that most of the time spent was actually just collecting information to figure out whether something is socially or environmentally impactful. But as an investor, I never do that for financial performance. I have financial data flowing through my terminal from a data provider or from the companies effortlessly. So I spend most of my time analyzing the financial performance of a company and figuring out whether I want to invest in it. The concept for that purpose then was let's make impact measurement effortless for investors so they can spend more time analyzing impact and making decisions to improve social and environmental performance than collecting the data themselves. So we're the first dedicated data provider for that new generation of investors who are trying to invest for profit, but also for what we call purpose. And we're literally on a mission to make impact measurement effortless for a million investment professionals by 2025. There must be a reason why this is so hard, right? What is that reason? Is it that companies don't have this readily available or is it just that it's not aggregated and it's in disparate system? Why is this data not as easily available as financial performance data? There's about four reasons at least, and I'll outline them for you, Anita. But it's also useful to think about the financial parallel here because in financial markets, accounting standards weren't locked down to the early 2000s. And right up to that point in the 80s and 90s, you had 
financial data providers start to solve exactly this challenge. Like Bloomberg was started in the 1980s, as well as Faxet, et cetera. And that's now a $30 billion industry that exists just to provide investors with financial data so they can make decisions because there's a lot of value in centralizing that in one place. Fast forward to today when we're trying to optimize not for financial returns only, but also ESG, that data infrastructure has not been built. So one, it's really hard to figure out what to measure. If you're in the role of ESG, you've got to go and figure out a hundred different standards, read them all, figure out what you should be measuring, and then maybe start trying to grab some data. So that's challenge one. Challenge two is getting the data itself. It does exist in thousands of different places. No one goes and grabs that themselves for financial performance. So why would you do that for environmental and social performance? Three, making sense of that information once you've got it is challenging. Like carbon emissions should go down, not up. (laughs) It's obvious and simple, but different to financial performance. And then four, figuring all this out takes time and costs money. And asset managers, like investors, don't have oodles of cash sitting around. They're typically lean teams trying to find amazing companies to back. So we exist to give them the rocket fuel, basically, to do all of that and do their jobs well. But those four challenges are kind of why it's hard and the problems that we're solving. But why aren't the companies that are already providing the financial data in this, trying to solve this problem? Bloomberg and others are trying to solve this problem, but it's an entire new domain. And knowing what you're looking for and what is a quality data point, I mean, on recycling, for example, I mean, composting, waste to incineration, energy recovery, paper recycling, et cetera. They're all different categories of one metric. If you don't know exactly what you're looking for and what's high quality, it's difficult to know how to assess the data. So that was actually though an interesting eye-opening thing for us because we always had the same premonition, like surely someone must be doing this already. And it hasn't been done in a very high quality way. Interesting. Tell me about net purpose. Are you just providing the data for an industry or for a company that someone else then analyzes for ESG and those different standards and criteria defined by those standards body? Or are you doing the analysis and giving a simple score for a company or an industry? We provide data, raw facts to investors on these sustainability indicators And we help them automate their reporting on these indicators to their clients. But we have not taken the step of doing a score. And I'll tell you why. Basically, the ESG space is awash with scores. And 10 years ago, the score was really important because there was no data on any performance. So companies did not disclose as consistently as they disclose today. So an analyst was required to say, Based on my assessment, this seems like good risk or bad risk. Fast track today, we're just in a completely different world. We don't need an A. We need 2,345 metric tons of carbon, and that's increased by 7.3% year on year. And that's way off track for a two-degree world. That's the rigor that we need today. So we've gone straight to the source to get those facts and put them in the hands of investors so they can make quantitative decisions and measure their performance and not cover that up with our own subjective assessment of what is good or what is bad. Let the numbers speak for themselves. I think that makes a lot of sense. I read somewhere that when it comes to just scoring, there are companies that do that. 
and you can have a, a company in the top quartile in one scoring method and at the bottom quartile in one exactly. scoring method, which makes the whole point of the score and number completely meaningless. So giving the source of data does seem like a step in the right direction. But what about this issue of greenwashing, where I've heard about businesses that make false claims or misleading claims about their environmental policies or the gestures that they're making, but ultimately they have very little impact. Mm -hmm. How real is the data that you're getting? How much trust can that data have for the people who are actually using it to analyze? This is such an interesting topic because the truth set has not been established. It's actually really hard to figure out what's true. Where if you look at financial performance, you've got dollars in a bank account that can be validated by an auditor that looks at the bank account. Here we're talking about social and environmental factors that can't be audited as rigorously as that today. So in that space of uncertainty, you need to do something to make progress and then do something to validate the source of truth and make sure it's true. So what we've done is we've started with company reported data because A, like companies are the source of this information and they're the ones that are having an impact on the world. And ultimately we want to get to a point where they're all disclosing the truth and it can be validated and engaging with them on that journey is our core priority. So we've started with what they report and we've put all that on one page. So we currently have a reported data set from companies that is the starting point of the data set and is not perfect, but it's good and it's a step in the right direction. The second thing we do then is validate that information by assessing what is more likely to be true. And those truth points come from alternate data sets, like scientific literature that tells us the life cycle emissions of a particular industry that's been scientifically validated by external auditors, et cetera, by regulators. A lot of this data is actually regulated and it has been regulated for a number of years and companies disclose their local emissions and facility level to local authorities so we can grab that information. There's a whole host of alternate data sets too that are coming online like satellite imagery so you can actually pinpoint a facility and see how polluting it is which are super sexy and novel but need to be wrangled a lot and put in a usable format but that's the journey we're going on. We complement company data with external sources of truth to try and get the most accurate assessment of a company's social and environmental performance and put that in one place. Interesting. And you determine what factors of ESG you would consider for a specific company based on that industry and the requirements from those standards bodies. Is that correct? Our parallel is we're not the standard setters for international financial reporting standards. We want the same to exist for environmental and social standards. So we help promote the standards, but we don't create new ones. And then we help investors implement the standards by getting the data that underpins them and all the metrics in our database map to all the evolving standards. So investors know they're at the forefront of reporting as it evolves. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the other side of your business. So you have this idea because there's a need for it. There's ESG, it's becoming big. People have to report on it. You're making it easy to get the real raw data, triangulating it with different sources of truth and giving it to them. Maybe this is obviously part of your experience being head of impact at LeapFrog, but how did you figure out 
the product market fit? What was your journey like? You had this idea, you came up with probably some sort of a beta or an MVP. Talk me through how you then went on the journey to figure out exactly what your product market fit is going to be. Actually, I've been thinking about this a lot in ahead of our conversation. And I think the first thing is that it's such an evolving thing, product market fit. And I hope that we're always trying to achieve product market fit, right? In the current product and the new products and everything that we build. And so refining that art is quite an interesting thought process to go through. I sat at Leapfrog as head of impact and had my own problems that were shared by a lot of my peers in the industry. And that was the source of the first, who's the user? What problem are we solving? And what solution could solve that problem? And the the problems I articulated earlier around so many standards, no data, hard to figure out what to do with the data and no resourcing were the core ones that we set out to solve. But the way that we did that was before even starting that purpose, we came up with a proposition that these are our challenges, this is how we think they could be solved, and then pitched that to all the people I could possibly find while I was still doing my day job. And thinking, don't you guys feel like we need this? Wouldn't this be helpful or would it not be helpful? And just went through a testing process over months, basically, before we did anything in PowerPoint slides and got feedback. I guess we were fortunate to have a cohort of people that all had the same problem that we were trying Mm. to solve that we could readily call up and say, what do you think to this? But that was the first stage, just testing the idea before we even did anything. And then the second stage, though, was after we'd done that, I think there was pretty broad consensus that, oh, my God, if I had this, it would, like, make my life so much easier. So that inspired me to, oh, I can't sit here any longer. I'm going to resign, move on, and try and build this solution that I feel like needs to happen for the industry. That journey, full-time work, started at the start of 2019. And we did a couple of things very concretely. One is... We worked with clients from day one. So I always thought there's no point building something on the side unless it's embedded directly into investment decisions from day one. Because if it's not, we risk going on a tangent over here and building something that no one wants. So let's go and find some of these large investors to try and commit to helping build this, given everyone said they wanted it in that early phase. And that took time. So we didn't sit down and start building a product on day one. We actually went to go find co-collaborators to do that and negotiated an agreement to like build something quite ambitious um, and get their input into it. Were people open to you building collaboratively and yet being able to then use that for other investors as well? Because obviously you're trying to build a company. They were. There's a lot of advice out there when you do this, that you actually shouldn't do this. You shouldn't anchor too much on one client. And I think that's solid advice, to be honest, if you're building something that needs to be tested still. I think we'd done a fair bit of that, knowing what the problem was we were solving in that first phase, such that when we got to phase two, it was about anchoring on a couple of users that would invest their time and energy in making sure it actually fit what they needed. But it required some selling. I mean, large institutions are not particularly innovative by default. But I think we have a really important problem that's facing all of their investment professionals today. 
and setting big enough goals that we could accomplish together while also meeting expectations that this might fail was really important. But, you know, we were lucky to have people come on that journey and give us feedback. Did you focus on any specific industry? Because we just spoke about how every industry, the indicators are different. Yeah, it was very specific, actually. Well, two thoughts there. One is we did actually start by saying, we'll help measure the impact of your portfolios against SDG3, you know, one healthcare, basically. And everyone was like, no, (laughs) that's not going to be useful at all at the end of the day, because... My clients don't care just about healthcare. They also care about climate change and waste and water and you've got to do everything. And we said, okay, that sounds more challenging, but we can do it. And so then we kind of reset. And the ambition of the first pilot was to measure the SDG impact, the Sustainable Development Goal impact of 250 of the world's largest companies in the listed equity space, so listed companies, so we had done a bunch of segmentation to get there. So we knew that, A, we were targeting buy-side asset managers that were running impact portfolios and actually needed to report on those portfolios to their clients, like yesterday, <laughs> so that they really needed this information. B, the listed equities focus versus, like, we didn't start with startups. We're, we're going there <laughs> and we love startups and we really want to help. But we started with large companies because... The data is publicly available. It's a huge asset class for our clients. They need to get a solution for, and it would help us build a data infrastructure leveraging so much effort from these companies on their sustainability reporting, i.e. best quote-unquote practices. So yeah, buy-side asset managers, listed equities, and then an ambitious goal to cover 250 of the world's largest companies with all SDGs, 10 of them, sorry, in six months. Wow. <laughs> and did you get there? We did. <laughs> I think once you set that goal, we also managed expectations. We might not get there. This may fail. But I think we also structured that. Like, you don't pay us until we've delivered. Let's go on this journey together, etc. And we did. So then with that goal set and the buy-in, we built a team, but we really did it. So Reid Hoffman, uh, co-founder of LinkedIn, I think has a fabulous saying around do things that don't scale. And that goal sounds quite ambitious in terms of scale, but we actually just needed to sit there, shorts and t-shirt around a dining table, basically, and trawl through these reports, these 250 companies for months. We got about five people around that dining table and we just did it manually so that we knew every in and out, every permutation of how data was reported by these companies what the fields were that we needed to capture, the quality assurance process we needed to put in. And we did it by hand. And we had some fabulous engineers that joined us on the way to literally watch what we were doing manually and come up with a plan to automate that while we were doing it Mm -hmm. manually. But that do things that don't scale, I think, was also essential because we learned exactly what needed to be done on a very minute level. And then we've since scaled that up. Very cool. So you went through this exercise, you came up with a beta or an alpha, and then what happened? And then we shipped the data on time for every milestone, which was quite something for us because we didn't know if we could even do it. And I think the question came from the client, how are we going to use this information? We're like, good question. So then we had to add on reporting functionality. Like we need to get you not just the data, but also a report that shows you what this data actually means. 
So we added on a reporting functionality for the data at the end and then had a very productive discussion about whether this fits your needs. Like, could you go take this and report to your clients with this information? And ultimately we got to a solution that the answer there was yes. Yes, but we need more companies to be covered. We're like, okay, we can do that. And then we structured another partnership and rolled forward the collaboration. And then we now cover 2,000 of the world's largest companies with that core data set. And we provide that to a number of asset managers. But that first club collaboration was what got us going. And post that, we just scale that up. So basically, your customer are asset managers that have an impact portfolio or need to report on impact. And is it like a subscription model? Exactly. So it's now a live functioning data set where we have a team of about 60 people that work on this across the world, actually. We have a fabulous collaboration with a team in Africa who do first round extraction. We have an internal quality assurance team that QA quality assured the, the information. But it's a live data set, basically, that's updated every month for new corporate disclosures and helps investors measure the impact of any of their holdings in their portfolio at any given time. The product is a data feed and actually a reporting tool. The first product that we shipped was just an Excel file. We now have a functioning web application where people can jump in and download a report and download all the data themselves, which was a new leap that just happened in Q1, Q2 of this year. And the product is basically data feed and access to that reporting functionality. And our clients pay us an annual subscription basis for accessing that information. So you have 60 people when you were building the product. How did you fund your initial journey? That initial pilot was funded with revenue to start with, like the five people sitting around a dining table. Post that, we raised a seed round, the first pre-seed seed round from angel investors who are fabulously supportive. And we raised a million dollars and we set out to scale that initial 250 company pilot to cover 1,600 companies. 1,600 is more or less the MSCI world. There's about 1,600 companies in that benchmark index that a lot of our clients are anchored on. And that was the next goal. And to achieve that, we raised a million dollars. And the 60 people are spread out. They're not full-time employees of net purpose. Uh, We have 16, actually, full-time employees today. That's collaborators outside of the company as well, including contractors and others. So you mentioned MSCI. Maybe you can take a moment to talk. I I did come across this in my reading about Sustainalytics and MSCI. How are they different from what you do? MSCI actually stands for Morgan Stanley Capital International. It was a business spun out of Morgan Stanley a number of years ago. And their core business, they're an index provider and a data provider such that they run some of the world's most well-known indexes, compilations of listed companies and non-listed, et cetera. So the MSCI world is a collection of 1,600 or 2,000 of the world's largest companies across developed markets. The all-country world index includes emerging markets, but a lot of investors measure their performance relative to those benchmarks. So one of our clients will say, we achieved X financial return last year, and that was X more or less than the MSCI world, for example. So MSCI has an ESG practice, which has largely been built on ratings and 
basically provide ratings on companies from A, I think, to B, C. I don't know what the scale is. They do also provide some data. I think they're doing more of that, but their core business has been ratings. Sustainalytics, similarly. Companies started, I think, in the 70s. They're quite established in ESG ratings for companies, fabulous analysts that rate companies and rate funds. And Sustainalytics was acquired by Morningstar, which is another financial data provider. As an investor, wouldn't I just say, oh, well, Sustainalytics is well-known, they're well-established, they have data, and they're giving me the score, which is so much easier for me to use. Why would they go through this process of going to net purpose and getting the data and doing the analysis and all that? It comes back to, I think, the challenge around ratings that we discussed earlier, that they're analyst-driven mostly, not data-based. And in addition, net purpose has more data than they do across more themes. So ESG traditionally really assessed financial risk and risk associated with environmental social factors. We're quantitatively measuring that risk as well as the return, so the opportunities for companies to contribute to solutions. So we have a more expansive data set and we are a data provider, not a ratings provider. And it's such a slight nuance, but it's actually so important if you think about this multi-billion dollar financial data industry, the meticulous detail that you require to compile quality facts standardized across every single company is quite something. And some of the earliest innovations with capital IQ in the financial data sector was simply like they structured their analyst teams around revenue line items instead of companies. So instead of covering Microsoft with 345 indicators, like one person, have one person focus on revenue and make that consistent across every single company. You get such better quality data by doing that. So data collection in itself and assuring the quality of that data is quite an involved task. And if you're a business built around ratings, that's not your core. And Mm. so I think that's the opportunity that we see. And also just the gap that we're feeling based on our own experience that the quality data didn't exist. What's next for Net Purpose? Where are you in your journey? We're still on a mission to make impact measurement effortless for a million investment professionals. And we're just well into our seed round now. And we set pretty ambitious goals for ourselves around clients and revenue and coverage. We covered 2000 companies today with that core data product. And we've also added on quite sophisticated estimations of data where data does not exist. We are also now helping investors underpin EU regulatory reporting and net zero alignment given climate is such an important topic, leveraging the core data that we originally built, but creating more products and solutions to help investors meet Mm. that growing need of ESG tools. I think the exciting thing for us on the horizon, though, is one, we will be looking to partner with new investors in a Series A coming up soon, hopefully, where we'll be looking to raise around to fund this next stage of our growth. And I think the other really exciting thing that we'd love to do is, is start to tackle private markets. Um, I think listed markets is a fabulous infrastructure for us and a comparable data set that we can help leverage for private companies to understand how they are doing relative to some of the biggest companies in their space. We'd love to be able to create a tool that helps private companies disclose their ESG performance in an effortless way and also then helps investors measure impact consistently across all elements of their portfolios, listed and private. 
So that's a couple of the, the product pieces, but I think in addition to that, our team is growing and this whole journey is all about the people and the team and we're really seeking excited, passionate people looking to contribute to this space on the engineering side, on the analyst side and on the sales side as we grow. I love it. Like I said, I think this is such a important topic that is only going to grow in importance as the world comes to grips with all the different environmental factors that are impacting it very visibly. So I'm really excited to have you on the show and and learn so much about the space, Sam. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Anita. I think that was really fun. A great conversation. I love diving into what is ESG because it's such an important topic. And I think we got a ton of good discussion too on product market fits. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building.